John chapter 8, John chapter 8 is a great, great passage, and I could preach for an hour on this passage, but I'm not going to tonight. We're going to look at the finger of God tonight, John chapter 8, and we will come back to this passage. Um, The human finger is quite amazing. I mean, it's just phenomenal, all the things our fingers can do, that our brain can tell them what to do, and and it's just another evidence of the creation of God, what God has created. Um, and I think about recent prosthetics are great as well. Uh, not, nothing like what God can make, but they're making things now that can connect to the brain and, and you can, you know, move things. It's just amazing what they can do today. But our fingers aren't like God's in that his are uh, all-powerful, all-knowing, and in all places. I have here omnipotent, excuse me, omniscient, and omnipresent. Uh, because God is the one who created the worlds and spoke them into existence. And the Bible said he created them with his fingers. And we'll explain more about that later. Uh, the Bible talks about our hands being hands that are sinful, Isaiah 59. Our hands are hands that are shameful, Isaiah calls them in, in chapter 17, verse 8. And then we see God's hands. And uh, we see his hands, his fingers, excuse me, seven times in the Bible. So we're going to look at those seven passage, passages tonight. This is called anthropomorphism. What is that, Pastor? We know God is a spirit, but the Bible often gives descriptions of God to help us understand that he can relate to us. The Bible said his ears cannot hear our prayers when we sin, but his eyes can see everything we do. And we know the Bible talks about different body parts with God, even though he's a spirit. But tonight we're going to look at the seven places where the word finger is found in John chapter 8. Let's stand and read. And you know this great story. Woman caught in adultery, and they come to accuse uh, her. And the Bible says in verse 6, that this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Verse 8, and again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And I call these the fingers of God. This is the one time we're referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, uses his finger to write on the ground. The other times we'll look at the Father. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your handiwork, for the fact that you are in control. One day we'll understand all the things that have happened. One day we'll understand why, why Mike had a stroke. But, Lord, we know you're getting all the glory for that one day. And why other folks here have suffered. And why our world's in turmoil tonight, as we talked about this morning. But we have to trust your handiwork. You're in control, and thank you for that. Bless now, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We will come back to John chapter 8. But let's go to Exodus chapter 8 and verses 16 to 19. Exodus chapter 8. Verses 16 to 19, we're going to look at several passages from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 8, chapter 8, verses 16 to 19. And you know the context here is the plagues. This is the first time the Egyptians admit the power of God because of these plagues. And here in chapter 8, verses 16 to following, it says here, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. 
And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments, enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon men and upon beast. The magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. Here, you know, the Egyptians recognize God did this. Now, this is an important thing. As you study the plagues, we're not going to do that one day. I'd like to preach through that. Of course, I have all these desires, and I'm not going to be here 100 years. But another portion of Scripture I'd like to go through is the plagues. Because every plague will refute one of the Egyptian gods. Now, we're monotheist, Deuteronomy 6. We believe in one God. One God, three persons, one God. But the Egyptians were poly. The word poly means many. Polytheists. Theists is our word theism for God. They believed in many gods. And so here is the God Set. And this God Set was a God of cleanliness. And if there's one thing that is gross, it's lice. Now, it's some sort of parasite here in the text. We don't know if it's the kind of lice we get in our hair. Uh, it may be, we don't know, it could be sand fleas, but just think about lice. When someone comes to school and they say, well, so-and-so can't come today because they have lice, what do we think? <laughs> Ooh, here is their God, the God of cleanliness, and our God smotes them with a plague of lice. Aaron, lift up your rod, and everybody had lice. All oh, the beast had them, the people had them. What a miserable thing. And of course, as the Egyptians had to admit, this, this is a handiwork of, of, of God, and that's a reference to their God. And they, they, they had a God of spotlessness, but their God wasn't all-powerful. Ours is. And so this is the first occurrence here we're going to look at. Then we go to chapter 31 in verse 18. Chapter 31 of Exodus, verse 18. Our second place. And this is also referenced in Deuteronomy 9, 9, and 10. I'm not going to read both passages because they are the same, referring to the same time. But in 31, 18, the Bible said, and he, gave to Mo, and, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with what? The finger of God. So God wrote the law and gave Moses these tables of stone, and he had the law. And, of course, God knows it all. This is the all-knowing. You know, God, to think about him giving the law, to be able to write the law and give him the law, of course, God knows everything. There's no problem for God. But he just simply wrote and gave him these tables of stone, fulfilling what he had promised in 24:12. Now go to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 for the third place. If we count John, it's the fourth, but we're going back to John. We'll call John's passage the seventh. Psalm chapter 8. I love this passage. David writes this after his big battle with Goliath. I mean, he had killed Goliath. First time you see rock and roll in the Bible. He uses a rock to hit him, and they cut his head off, and his head rolls down in the valley. Uh, rock and roll for the first time. That's a terrible, terrible joke. Pray for me. Obviously, I need prayer. But here, verse 3, 
The Bible, here the psalmist is saying, When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the work of thy fingers. I'm amazed as I look out into space, and you are as well, to think of the handiwork of God. You know, it says here with his fingers, the work of his fingers. We know he spoke it into existence, but this is to help us understand the handiwork of God. You look out and you get a telescope and you look out and you're just like, this is unbelievable. Look at these lights. And they're all so massive. You could just roll up hundreds and hundreds of the earths and just throw them in every one of those stars. They're, they're so massive. In fact, if you got on the Alpha Centurii, the closest star to the earth, you could not see the earth with a telescope. Isn't that awesome? I mean, there's just so many, just innumerable. But we know it's just, just fascinating. It would take you to reach the sun going 300, or going, um, it would take, take you 300 years to reach the sun if you drove 75 miles an hour nonstop. 300 years. To reach uh, Neptune, it would take you 8,300 years to reach Neptune. And to reach the closest star, that's a planet, to reach the closest star would take you 75 million years driving 75 miles an hour. That's a long trip. <laughs> and you don't count the bathroom breaks and the refueling. Of course, if we have electric cars, we've got to stop and charge them up all the time. Nah, I'm being silly. But think of how awesome God's creation is. What is man that thou art mindful of him? What God created is just like... You know, and I just imagine when we finally stand before him and see him, we're going to be like, you know, we're going to be in awe. We may stand there for a century in awe of how awesome he is, the excitement of just seeing him. And finally, as we, we know, we'll have the mind of Christ to understand everything, to understand his greatness, his plan, to understand why everything happened. We'll know all that because we'll have the mind of Christ. And yet, in spite of knowing everything, the Bible still tells us in the temple, Jesus will teach and will learn more. How can you learn more when you already have that mind of Christ? Well, only God could teach you more. And that's just going to be something to behold. But we find here, he actually spoke into existence, but here we see uh, the handiwork of God again. Then go to Daniel chapter 5 and verse 5. This is quite stunning. Daniel chapter 5, verse 5. Archaeologists have found rooms uh, as big as these rooms that are described in Daniel that could be large banquet halls. They've actually found some of them in these different parts of the world lining up with how the Bible describes it. But here in Daniel chapter 5, verse 5, you know the story. The uh, Babylonians were arrogant, and uh, we know that God needed to judge them. And we know in chapter 5, verse 5, while they're having this big banquet, this drunken banquet, the Bible says, In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And what did it write? It said, You're going to be divided. You're going down in defeat. And I'm paraphrasing that. Technically, we could get into some things here. But here again, the handiwork of God. This finger that writes the judgment of God on the wall. And I don't know whether this is uh, the Yahweh's hand or whatever, but we know the hand is definitely controlled by God. And here this is written. And the judgment that was written there came, came, became true, was fulfilled that very hour. The Chaldeans came in. 
and uh, unbelievable stuff. But we know Belshazzar was told, you know, uh, you and your people are going down in defeat. And verses 25 and so describe and, and further, for, excuse me, 25 and, and beyond, describe the defeat of Belshazzar in the kingdom of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were the religious Babylonians and the Medes and the Persians will come in and take over. Again, the handiwork of God. Um, God judged Babylon fairly according to his fair balance. Their days were numbered and the kingdom would be divided, divided between the Medes and the Persians. You have Cyrus and Darius. Uh, Darius was a Mede, Cyrus is a Persian. But here again, God's all-powerful, all-knowing. And here God had helped, Daniel had helped Belshazzar's grandfather greatly, but he didn't remember Daniel. He didn't remember how great Daniel was. And so we have again the handiwork of God. Then in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. And we know the story here in Luke chapter 11 and verses 14 to 23. Jesus and Beelzebub. And of course, the enemies of Jesus are saying he cast out demons with the power of Beelzebub, who is, of course, that's a, that's a name of a Philistine god, but really it's, it's used to describe, uh, literally, it means Lord of the Flies. And, of course, Jesus is going to refute them and say, uh, you know, I'm not going to cast out demons by the power of demons. That doesn't make any sense. And, and Satan can't be divided against himself in verse 18. But in verse 20, he says, but... If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. Wow, he's saying, he's saying, I, I, what, think about Jesus, I want to back up. We tend to forget that Jesus is 100% God, yet without sin. He's 100% God, he's 100% man. Scripture will call him Jesus Christ, emphasizing humanity, the word Jesus being before Christ, or Christ Jesus, emphasizing his deity. But he was 100% God, 100% man. He was a son of man, son of God, son of man. The son of man is not just that he was a son of Joseph. That's not what that means. It implies that, but that's really a reference to his incarnation, that he is actually God in the flesh. And this is why they were always so angry with him and always accusing him, because he claimed to be God. He, he could forgive sin. He could heal. He could raise the dead. And so they just absolutely despised him. But he says, when a strong man, in verse 21, is armed, he keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger man comes along and takes it from him, he says in verse 23, he that is not with me is against me. So he, he makes it very clear that he is from God and of God, he knew their thoughts. Quite often, Jesus would argue, and you say, why is Jesus saying what he's saying? Because he knew their thoughts. You know, when you have kids, you know what your kids are up to. So many times, my kids would come, and I know I never did this to my parents. But you know you're smarter than your kids, you know? Like, you, you, you say, why did you do that? I didn't do it, Dad. And as they get older, you remind them of those stories and they laugh. Why did I lie about that? It's so obvious I did that, I know. But when you're little, you don't understand the big picture. And as parents, we see them do something. We know who, who they did it and why they did it and everything about it. And our, and our kids think they can lie to us. And, and you want to say to them, one day you'll grow up and realize how foolish that lie is. We know what they're thinking. We know what they're up to. And Jesus always knew what the Pharisees were up to. He could read their mind. 
and deal with their heart. And so again, we see here the fingers of God. And then in John, back to John chapter 8, where we began. And this story is, is one of my favorite stories, and yet I'm not doing it justice in just sharing a few thoughts with you. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, and quite often he would get away to pray. And I love, I love prayer. It's so vitally important in our lives. It's a time when we talk to God. And we really need to study what Jesus said about prayer. Remember the disciples said, teach us to pray. And then he taught them how to pray. First of all, you adore him. You know, and Jesus prayed to the Father and gave us a perfect example. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The one thing Jesus did not do in prayer that we need to do is what? Confess sin. See, the first thing we need to do is confess sin. Because Isaiah 59 says, I won't hear your prayer. I'll cast a deaf ear toward it. He said, your sins have separated you from me and I will not hear your prayer. Isaiah 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So the first thing we do is confess. And then the next thing we do is adore him, praise him. The last thing we do is ask him, but we ask him first for other people and their needs before we ask for our selfish needs. So we should pray like Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus quite often with, with, with just get away to pray. And he was in the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, verse 2, it says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came with him, and he sat down and taught them. I love this. Again, he's sitting down. You know, if, if our pastor sat down and, and shared a sermon, you'd think, well, that's liberal or something. You know, he, he should be up ranting and raving and moving around. Well, I do like to move around and, and rant and rave, I guess, sometimes. But Jesus just sat down and taught them, communicated with them from a seated position in the temple. So here he's, he's, he's sharing with them. And while he's sharing with them, the scribes and Pharisees, the scribes were lawyers. They worked for Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. Um, they were actually writers. The word scribe is our word grammar, grammatic, our word grammar. So they were writers, but they were writers of laws and lawyers. The Pharisees, as you know, were separatists, extremely separated. Paul was a second-generation Pharisee, meaning he was possibly the child of a Pharisee and he himself a Pharisee. And so we have the scribes and the Pharisees, not the Sadducees. They're a little different. They're more aristocratic, more wealthy. And uh, they're, they're a group that denied the resurrection. So they didn't get along with the Pharisees because they denied the resurrection. And that's why we call them sad, you see. But together they would oppose Christ. Isn't that something how the devil, he'll bring, he'll bring everybody. Boy, you, you get a Christian on trial and you, you got the, the, the abortionists there. And you got the, the homosexuals there. And everybody packs together against Jesus, you know. And here they are now, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they brought a woman taken in adultery, meaning she was actually committing the act. We won't get graphic, but committing the act of adultery when they set her in her midst. And they, so they bring him to the Lord, and, and they say to him, Master, meaning, uh, you know, I don't need to explain that. This woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Isn't it interesting how we always point at the woman? <laughs> I think that's funny. That's funny sad. It's funny in a, a derogatory way. I mean, it's really funny, but it's really sad. Whenever a woman gets pregnant, you know, you look at the woman and think, oh, brother, 
where was the guy in all this? There had to be a guy involved. It took both people to commit the sin, but we always, you know, notice the woman. And here are the Jews who were somewhat uh, mal-chauvinists, so to speak. If you study their history, they really were. And they bring this woman and, and bring her before the Lord. We've caught her. We've caught her. There's no doubt they caught her. And they said, Moses in the law commanded us that she should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Well, I love it that Jesus is about to nail that handwritten ordinances to the cross. Uh, handwritten ordinances to the cross. But this was a serious sin. It, it, under by law, she should be stoned. What do we do? And this he did tempting. This they did tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They just wanted to entrap him. They had learned by now that Jesus was a merciful and gracious person. That's what they learned. That's why they're doing this. Because they want to see if he's going to enforce the law and punish this person according to the law. And they've got him either way. Because if he, if he, if he punishes her, he's not as gracious as he's, he's presented himself. And if he doesn't punish her, he's violated the law. Well, remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law. In fact, he is the living Logos, the living word of God. And he is the one that gave us the law to begin with. And so here, uh, they do, do this tempting him and, and to accuse him. And this is the mind-boggling thing. And I've heard this preached so many ways. I just want to sometimes say, we do not know, preacher, we do not know. Because all preachers are an authority on what he wrote. And we just don't know what he wrote. Right? Do we really know? No. Different ideas. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Acted as though they weren't even there and he just wrote something on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. I have suspicions. Maybe he wrote the man's name. But we really don't know. Maybe he wrote some law they had violated. I don't know. Uh, but, but he writes on the ground and they continued asking him. And he lifted him up and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a stone to her. So something was written that convicted them to the point where they would not cast a stone. So whatever he wrote convicted them and pointed out in their life something that stopped them from throwing the first stone. Because if he hadn't written down and said, Go ahead and stone her, they'd have stoned her. But he wrote something down. And then he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And I, I want to think what it is, and I really don't know. And I've heard people just preach this with authority. I know exactly who wrote the man's name he wrote. We don't know. But he wrote something. And whatever he wrote just totally embarrassed them, totally exposed them. And so they just had to leave. Maybe he wrote the man's name or all the people in the group that had themselves done the same thing. I don't know what he wrote, but he knew everything. And boy, I'd like to, oh, wouldn't you like to know everything? Wouldn't you like to get on TV and just start exposing some of the stuff behind the scenes with our world's leaders? Wouldn't you like to do that? Of course. God one day is going to do that. It's called the great white throne judgment. He's going to expose it all. So Jesus writes something, and look what it says. And when they heard it being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last, and Jesus was left alone with the woman. Don't you love that? He wrote something. Twice he wrote something. Or maybe he wrote two different things. 
And the oldest, the wisest one just kind of snuck out of the area. And then they just started going all these different directions. I love that. What did he write? I don't know. We'll know when we get to heaven. We'll know when we get to heaven. But here he's with this woman. And he see, he looks up. He's still down. He looks up. She's the only one left. Of course, he knew they'd all left. He knew what to write. He said, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. Master, no man. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Oh, wow. Isn't that, isn't that the grace of God? What did we quote this morning? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Do you know I'm not condemned? John 3, 18 says those without the Lord are already condemned. So what does it tell us? This woman had faith in the Lord. We don't read about it and see it necessarily, but she had faith because he said, I'm not going to condemn you. You're not condemned. I don't condemn you either. Just don't do that anymore. Go. And if I ever meet this one, I know I'll meet her one day. When I meet her, I'll learn about her testimony. And I doubt she ever did commit adultery again. I believe she ended up being a virtuous woman. And you know, that's interesting. We're going to close with that thought. But we talk about the virtuous woman. The word in Proverbs really means hard work ethic. It includes the idea of purity, but it really is about a woman who's just worthy in all areas of life. The virtuous woman, remember, worked hard in the home and outside the home and sold goods and took care of her husband, took care of her family, clothed them well. And we a lot of times like to think, well, that that woman, she was a slut or a prostitute or a whore or whatever, and that that person's not virtuous. Let me tell you something. When you get saved, you get a clean slate. Years ago, I was preaching on Mother's Day about the virtuous woman, and I pointed out that all of you can be virtuous when you give your life to Jesus Christ. It's a new beginning. I love that about God. All you ladies can be virtuous if you're right with God. We had a lady come forward in our church and say, I've been a trashy woman. Basically, she said, I've been a trashy woman my whole life. And, tonight, and this morning, I got hope. I love that, don't you? <laughs> that I can live a life of virtue. I love that about God. He gives us a clean slate. Here's a woman. He just said, you have a fresh start, lady. You, you, I don't condemn you. Why? Because she would be forgiven at Calvary. Their sins would be atoned for by on the day of atonement. At Calvary, they'd be gone. And he says to her, I forgive you. No one can condemn you. You're clean. I love that about God. I was sinking deep in sin. Sinking to rise no more, but the master rescued me. I love that. What would, be, what would we be without the Lord? We'd be all condemned. Romans 3.18, we're already condemned if we don't have the Lord. People are already lost and on their way to hell without Jesus. Repentance changes your direction. And you get off that wide road to destruction and get on that narrow road. And he gave this woman her life back. They tried to trap him. He knew their plot. It didn't work. They didn't bring the man. They brought the woman And she became a virtuous woman because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we all have a fresh start, Lord. 
Lord, I don't deserve to be saved. I don't deserve to preach. I don't deserve to have your grace, but you've given it to me. Thank you. And Lord, you've given it to others here tonight, and we can just thank you for it. And so tonight we praise you and thank you. We pray for those that have had hard weeks and hard times and ask you to bless them. But tonight we thank you for your grace, which has made us all virtuous in your sight. Righteous because of your blood. Blessed now in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand and sing a song. Just now.